The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this Monday morning. HSBC warns of a, quote, challenging revenue outlook after missing third quarter profit expectations as the lender flags a weak performance in Europe. The CFO, Ewan Stevenson, tells CNBC it's Asian business that's doing well despite the trade war and unrest in Hong Kong. We've obviously got the ongoing trade dispute between US and China. Uh, and the ongoing protests, both of which are impacting the business. You can see that in the underlying macro data. Overall, we're pretty pleased with the way that Hong Kong's continuing to perform for us. LBMH goes after the little blue box as the Louis Vuitton owner reportedly makes a $14.5 billion bid for US jeweler Tiffany. And Brussels prepares to approve a long Brexit extension with the possibility of an earlier exit if the UK Parliament ratifies a departure deal. President Trump confirms Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi died in a raid by US Special Forces in northern Syria. Plus, outgoing US Energy Secretary Rick Perry tells CNBC he doesn't believe President Trump will be formally impeached. People so dislike this president in a political uh, way that they will spend whatever it takes. You know, even to the point of, of uh, giving up their own um, reputations to, to try to help. So a very warm welcome, everybody. Let's start the program on corporate earnings. HSBC has just missed earnings expectations, reporting an 18% plunge in third quarter pre-tax profit amid, quote, challenging market conditions. Uh, but interesting what they've said about Asia, given the current challenges. Let's get out to Emily, who is in Hong Kong, with a wrap-up on the story for us. Emily, good morning. Hi there, Jeff. Uh, we are keeping track of what's happening with HSBC. Uh, the shares are traded in Hong Kong in the afternoon session down about two and a half percent. So hovering near the intraday low. This is in response uh, to the latest report card that came out uh, just about an hour, about two hours ago. Now, pre-tax profit for the third quarter was down 18 percent. This is a miss. $4.8 billion. Revenues down 3% to $13.4 billion. But what was notable was that they saw some outperformance and resilience in the Asian market. Pre-tax profit in Asia was up 4% to $4.7 billion. And as I mentioned, the company indicated that there was resilience in the Hong Kong market. Parts of the business, they said, especially Asia, held up well. Some parts, though, the performance are not acceptable, namely continental Europe, the non-ring-fenced bank in the UK, as well as the United States. We got a chance to speak to the company's CFO, Ewan Stevenson, and this is what he had to say about the report card. I think uh, things went so wrong. I think the headline was obviously disappointing for us, but if you unpick that, I think a very resilient performance in Asia. Profits were up Q3 on Q3. We're pretty pleased with the performance we did on costs. But uh, behind that, we had uh, some very high one-offs, um, particularly things like UK conduct costs. Um, we also had continued weakness in our non-ring fence bank. 
and in the US, uh, and a relatively weak quarterly performance from our global markets business within global banking and markets. So looking at the earnings by geography, it was Asia that uh, was most notable, the only area uh, seeing growth on a pre-tax level up 5% on year to $4.7 billion. Uh, this region or this part of the world making up 83% of pre-tax profits. And of course, uh, Hong Kong was resilient, the bank said. Uh, this is despite 21 weeks of civil and uh, uh, political unrest in the territory. Uh, when we put the question to you and about uh, what he anticipates, whether or not he expects this to be a drag going forward on the earnings. We've got two things going on in Hong Kong at the moment. We've obviously got the ongoing trade dispute between US and China uh, and the ongoing protests, both of which are impacting the business. You can see that in the underlying macro data in the economy. Uh, trade numbers are down, tourism down, etc. Uh, but overall, we're pretty pleased with the way that Hong Kong's continuing to perform for us. There were some media reports about the potential cost cuts and uh, some layoffs. We asked him whether or not uh, he could confirm there would be layoffs amounting to 10,000, and he did not uh, comment on that. Uh, asked him about the share buyback. They completed a $1 billion share buyback so far this uh, financial year. I asked him whether or not uh, they are going to be announcing any further similar plans, and he said that that should be it for the remainder of the year. Uh, the outlook is uh, the revenue environment is more challenging in the, than in the first half, and the outlook for revenue growth is softer than expected, and they are not expecting to achieve their 2020 return on tangible equity target of more than 11%. Uh, so we are going to be, of course, uh, continuing to track HSBC shares on the back of the, the latest quarterly results. Uh, the company declaring a dividend of 30 U.S. cents per share. Back to you guys. Emily, let me just get into the leadership because there are question marks around the interim chief executive, Noel Quinn, uh, with some commentators suggesting this was almost a, an auditioning for the top job uh, with this set of numbers. But it seems quite incredible that this could be an audition, given that he's only really been at the helm for, for two months after that resignation or by mutual agreement by John Flint. And it does beg the question when you see such a weak set of numbers today, whether there was a management transition because of the operational performance of this business or whether it was done to political pressure at the time it was cited that maybe Flint had been pressured by the Chinese because of uh, information that may or may not have been handed over with regards to Huawei. What are we learning today now that you look at the, the numbers and uh, you've heard some of the, the speak from management? What do you make of all this? Well, we did put the question to uh, you and Stevenson earlier about uh, any updates on uh, when they're going to be able to announce a new CEO. Uh, the media reports saying that you uh, and Stevenson himself is a front runner uh, for the top job. He his answer to the question when I asked him uh, when we can hear the uh, official announcement. Uh, well, he didn't give any any clues, uh, but uh, said that he was focused on uh, his uh, CFO job when uh, I put the question that he was a front runner for this top job. Now, uh, what we we do know is uh, that we heard from uh, Noel Quinn, the interim CEO. He had said earlier that his mandate is to run the business not just as interim CEO but as a CEO of the bank. Uh, he took over just about 18 months uh, into John Flint's uh, into John Flint's ouster. So basically, coming in about two months ago after John Flint was on the job for 18 months, uh, this was a shock to the market as well as uh, to the company. And uh, the chairman said. Uh, 
uh, Mark Tucker saying that change was needed to make most of the opportunities ahead. Uh, so uh, just two months into the job, you can't say that this is all uh, responsible to Noel Quinn. But of course, he does have his work cut out for him. Uh, the latest quarterly numbers that came out were amiss. The adjusted pre-tax profit uh, was down 18 percent against uh, the market looking for a decline of only 11 percent, $4.8 billion in a pre-tax profit. But Asia was looking really good. And this continues to be uh, where they make the bulk of their business. So maybe if they can continue to ride on that, uh, that could bode well for Noel Quinn. Uh, we'll be continuing to wait any indication on uh, the company's announcement. They had earlier said anywhere between six and 12 months we can get an announcement on the new CEO. And this is a global search. But uh, what we know from HSBC is that they usually promote from within the bank. Back to you, Karen. Terrific, Emily. Let me just pick up for a moment. I just wanted to make a very quick point here because um, a lot of people um, think about the banks um, and think, okay, this is a sector that is unloved and it's been in its doldrums because of concerns about the slowdown in global economic activity. But let's have a quick look at a couple of charts here. And you can't look at HSBC in isolation and make relevant points if you don't have a look at other banks that are in the sector at the moment. So here's um, HSBC up against uh, Barclays on a year-to-date basis. And I think the chart doesn't exactly tell you what I'm looking for, but it does show that, that there's a relationship in the way that the banks more broadly have all traded. But if you take individual share charts, say Barclays over HSBC, what you will observe over the period is that Barclays has actually outperformed HSBC on a year-to-date and on a one-year basis. And you might look at these two banks and say, okay, they're both UK banks. Why would one be doing better than the other? And immediately, when we looked at the HSBC numbers this morning, the message coming out of the bank was, don't worry, Asia's going to be strong. We'll rely and focus on that part of the world and we'll, we'll do better. But that doesn't quite explain why Barclays would have outperformed HSBC on a one-year story in terms of its um, share price performance and shareholder expectations. If you look at the price-earnings ratios of these two banks, Barclays is trading off about 18 times at the moment. HSBC is down at around 13 times. So that also tells you that the shareholder expectations for Barclays are higher than they are for HSBC at this point. And then you go, okay, well, what about the Eurozone banks? Because that's pretty ropey, isn't it? A lot of the banks in the Eurozone have not done that well. Well, even if you put a stocks Europe 600 banks up against HSBC, there is clearly outperformance in the Eurozone. So I think Karen, you put your finger on it. This comes back to a management issue and an execution issue, it seems to me. The bank is saying, we've got problems on the revenue line. This is where we need to build improvement. Well, <clears throat> to my mind, they've got more than just a revenue headline issue here. They do need to get into the guts of the bank and they do need to take a scalpel and start doing some hard work. That said, I would say there's a bit of an element of the, the good with the bad. If you're an investor in a global business, you get often a lot of good. You get the higher growth rates, you get the diversification story. And this is a, well and truly that type of a bank where you get the Asian growth story in one corridor, you get a, a little bit of exposure to the very developed UK market. Unfortunately, in this window of time, what have you had? Brexit, all the uncertainty we've been reporting on every other day.
yesterday, the protests in Hong Kong that have impacted not just the banks, but obviously the clients or customers of the banks. And that's everyone from a, a business to a, a customer who might be taking money out or putting it with the bank. And then, of course, you had a global trade war that's been waged that's impacted the fortunes of a number of banks. And then we've had interest rates globally. Mm-hmm. Who'd want to be a banker at this point? Well, I think to your point about diversification and how this relates to HSBC is important. And one line stuck out to me in the outlook around signaling of more portfolio change to come, saying they plan to address their low return businesses, reduce their RWA and redeploy their capital into higher growth and return opportunities. And I know there had been speculation that they could look to diversify into something like a life insurance business earlier over the summer. There were reports they could look at uh, Aviva's assets. Uh, And I think this is clearly a message that they understand more needs to be done. In terms of ROTE, which is obviously where we need to look to see just how profitable these banks can be. So HSBC talking about 11% for 2020. Do you remember uh, we had Jez Staley on the program Mm -hmm. at the end of last week? And of course, for the bank as a whole, Jez Staley is talking about, can we get an ROTE of above 10% for 2020? So ballpark. But what's fascinating, we we sit here and we do it over and over again and we say, look, these banks are struggling with Brexit, the UK economy a disaster and so on and so forth. Barclays managed to squeeze an ROTE of 17% out of the UK and they are looking at improving that. You know, 20, let's have a look, include 21.2% in the third quarter through mortgage and deposit balance growth. But ultimately, year to date, an ROTE of over 17% out of the UK market. I mean, post financial crisis, the amount of banks we've interviewed, uh, and after all the cleanup that's taken place in the European banking sector, we've been told even 15% is uh, effectively unachievable for a lot of these banks. And here you have one of the faster growing ones, supposedly, in a normal uh, type of environment, and it's struggling to keep 11%. Maybe expectations should just be lower. and And it flags a very interesting question about the strategy, because here's HSBC telling us, we're going to focus on the Asian story, where we have strength and scale, and we expect stronger returns. But what did we talk? What were we talking about last week? The slowdown in the Chinese economy and a six percent print that could be going lower as we go through the rest of this year. Fascinating story. This and morning. all of that, of course, on top of the unrest that continues in Hong Kong. Well, let's uh, leave the conversation there and push on. But sticking in the region, AIA has reported its lowest ever quarterly growth in new business amid ongoing anti-government protests in Hong Kong. The Asia-focused insurers said the unrest hurt sales as fewer mainland tourists visited the city. Now, Hong Kong is about to enter recession as the unrest stretches into a fifth month. The city's financial secretary said GDP data set to be released on Thursday would show two successive quarters of contraction and that, quote, the blow to our economy is comprehensive. Uh, Coming up on the program in just a few moments, um, numbers from Philips. Uh, We've got a, quote, mixed set of results in the third quarter. Uh, Waiting in the wings, Franz Van Houten, the CEO of the business. We'll get to him in just a few moments. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. CNBC's 
signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. All eyes on that resolution of a trade war with the U.S. and Chinese officials saying they are close to finalising some parts of a trade agreement after a fairly high-level conversation. You can see the response in Asian markets. Now, speaking of a trade war, one company here in Europe has been warning about the impact and uh, this trade war standing in, in the way of it achieving some of its uh, targets on margins. This is Philips. It's uh, announcing its numbers today. Sales in the quarter amounted to 4.7 billion euros, 6% comparable sales growth. The comparable order intake was in line with the third quarter last year. Income from continuing operations amounting to 211 million euros, including a charge of 78 million related to a goodwill impairment. Uh, this is uh, a number on an adjusted EBITDA margin up 12.4% of sales. So let's bring in Franz Van Houten, CEO of Philips. He joins us down the line from Amsterdam. Franz, nice to have you back with us. Let me just ask you about the impact from the trade war. You gave an update uh, a couple of weeks ago when investors saw that those margins were in because of some of those tensions between the US and China. What are you seeing in the business? Well, we uh, call the quarter a mixed result because it is uh, a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, we had this very strong revenue growth, 8% across all businesses and across all geographies. So, in fact, that is very good news. Uh, at the same time, we see that, in particular, connected care uh, was affected by some headwinds. And that includes the, uh, the trade wars. Um, the other businesses were able to mitigate those trade wars a bit faster. Connected Care has a complex supply chain with many products and we were unable to move fast enough uh, to offset some of these tariff uh, impacts. Uh, and to be honest, we also had a few other uh, headwinds in Connected Care in the quarter, such as a, a somewhat weaker uh, product mix. But overall, uh, I remain confident about our ability to improve in the future. And uh, interesting comments there. You say you weren't unable to move fast enough to offset uh, some of those impacts from the trade war. Does that mean you've now accelerated to the point where you can offset some of those impacts? And then what happens if there is a resolution in a trade war? What will your activities be like? Will you see a, a different strategy then because we may see a reduction in tensions? Well, let us first of all all hope that those trade wars will move away, will mitigate, because that would be the best outcome for everybody. Uh, let me perhaps unpack a bit uh, the complexity of supply chains. Uh, to, to mitigate uh, the duties in a trade war, we either have shift production location uh, or we have to go back to the underlying suppliers of components and materials and ask them uh, to shift manufacturing location. And sometimes we even have to design out a, a manufacturer and uh, work with somebody else. Of course, all of that is a lot of extra work and a lot of extra cost. Um, and in connected care, since we have quite a wide product range, um, it takes a, a, an enormous effort to, to deal with. 
Uh, looking a little bit longer term here, I know you've got your Capital Markets Day coming up next year. How are you thinking about this structure of the group moving forward? And how are you thinking about this investor day? Is it going to be more evolution or revolution from you? Uh, we talk about evolutions, and let me explain why. I mean, Philips some years ago did a, a, a very significant portfolio transformation. We are focused now on what we call the health continuum. Uh, we are targeting to improve healthcare for billions of people around the world. Uh, our strategy is being received very well. Uh, we partner with hospitals. We just won, for example, Clinicum Stuttgart for a multi-year contract to help improve health outcomes, uh, patient results, uh, productivity and staff experience. And uh, the fact that we are being able to position ourselves as a solution company, leveraging systems, software, uh, informatics and services uh, is quite unique in the world. So I want to continue with this strategy. We have a lot of traction. The 7% revenue growth just underlines that. Um, we have already said in our uh, update a few weeks ago that we expect next year Again, four to six percent revenue growth and 100 basis points of profit expansion. So I think we are on a good path. We just need to stay the course, continue to be the case of self-help, as we often refer to ourselves, uh, and to stay firmly in control of the steering wheel. Um, Franz, can I just ask you to be a bit more specific about this uh, healthcare story? I remember we had uh, the conversation back in the second quarter and you were very excited about the improvement of sales into the Chinese market specifically. If I uh, recall, this was one of the um, double-digit sales jumps that you in particular put your finger on. As we now look at the warning you're giving around healthcare, is that a reflection of the fact that those China sales have actually contracted or that the momentum is coming out of them? Can we ask for some more specifics, please? Yeah, if you uh, look across the geographies, then China, again, was double-digit growth in the quarter. Uh, so the success there continues to, to, to happen. It's also explainable because the, the Chinese population, 1.4 billion, uh, is aging. There are more lifestyle diseases and the healthcare system in China is not yet having enough capacity to deal with all the demand. So Philips is growing strongly in uh, diagnosis, in treatment. Um, Increasingly also in informatics as we aid doctors to do the right diagnosis for each individual patient. So uh, the, the, the diagnosis and treatment segment in the third quarter was able to grow 9%. I think that just underlines the traction that we have in that business. So if that's still resilient, Franz, is, is it basically a management issue that you're pointing to here, an execution issue um, that means that margin is under pressure here? Because perhaps you're not just controlling costs through the, um, the manufacturing and the supply chain process? Well, uh, when you have top line growth uh, and your margin uh, is trailing, then of course you need to look at yourself. Uh, but we just spoke at uh, the trade war and the duties, and that's of course an external factor that is hard to, uh, to, to, to deal with. Uh, and it takes time. Uh, we certainly have to have looked deeply into our corrective actions and we are on top of it and we therefore can also be confident that going forward we will see gradual improvement. Uh, we have uh, adjusted the outlook for connected care for next year somewhat, but overall Philips uh, is slated to grow 4-6% to 6%, uh, with a profit expansion of 
uh, around 100 basis points that we have been delivering over the last three years and we have every intention to continue to do. Terrific. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. And um, let's see where the share price goes on this today, because you've had a terrific ride up. Okay. Uh, it's been an escalator, hasn't it, over the last 12 months. So we'll see whether the market hangs with you this morning on well, the news. Yeah, yeah go on. You, you were going to speak. Thank you very much. All right. Franz, thanks so much for being with us. Franz van Houten joining us from Philips in Amsterdam. Speaking of stocks to watch on the open this morning, LVMH as well, firmly in focus. It reported that it made, uh, reportedly has made an all-cash offer to buy U.S. luxury jeweler Tiffany & Co. for up to $14.5 billion. Sources told Reuters the French luxury group put in a preliminary offer early this month, valuing Tiffany's at $120 per share. However, the Financial Times reports that Tiffany is expected to reject the deal, believing it undervalues the company. And if you look at the share price performance for the last five years, you can see LVMH firmly out in front versus a very flat performance from Tiffany. All this after record levels that we saw on the stock price movement for the French company on Friday. Just in terms of logic, this would create a much bigger jewellery business for LVMH, where they have been traditionally fairly... Um, I guess, exposed fairly weakly versus some of the competitors, the likes of Richmond. But jewellery has been a growing area, gives them more exposure to the United States. What I would say is that, remarkably, there was an activist investor who got involved in the Tiffany stock back in 2017. They sold out in August this year, effectively giving up on hope that there would be some sort of strategic partnership between Tiffany and another player. The funny thing is, they were located right across the road. Uh, from that flagship store on Fifth Avenue. So how would they be feeling after selling the 80-odd million worth of stock uh, in August as this still comes to the table? Well, I think the, the key here is at what price Tiffany would be willing to entertain this offer, and that's where we sort of stand at the moment to wait to see if they engage. One statistic I came across I found really uh, telling of the state of the jewelry industry is that consumers are much less focused on labels and more focused on smaller producers when it comes to jewelry, and only 20% of the jewelry market in 2014 was branded. So there's a huge opportunity for LVMH taking hold of Tiffany's to try to make the jewelry market more of a branded area. One of the problems with Tiffany's is that the most exciting thing about it is the blue box. What should be more exciting is what's inside the blue box. And I think that's where LVMH sees the opportunity. The other point I would make for investors, what happened to Burberry? Why is no one buying Burberry? This is a major acquisition where you've got a French company going all the way to the other side of the world to buy a very expensive business. They're not even looking domestically or, or locally, which would be Burberry. Uh, which takes me back to a thesis that I, I, I believe is dri helping drive the sales at the moment in the luxury sector, that people are looking for stores of wealth, not just luxury that implies their status. But I think, you know, in an environment of near zero interest rates, there's a lot of value to be had in a diamond. Or stockpiling those blue boxes. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.